1: Thanks for joining today. My name is Carla Reyes. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, uh, and I'm the head of business development at CodeCoven, which is a global classroom and accelerator for underrepresented game developers. And I'm joined by the fantastic Kelly Wallach today. I'll let um, Kelly introduce herself, but uh, just want to give an overview of what we're going to be discussing today, which is um, navigating fundraising in a post-pandemic world. Um, so really, just trying to make sense of everything that's happening in the economy and society right now, and um, trying to share some insight and advice to you all as indie game developers who are um, looking to to pitch, publish, and and gain investment for your games. So, uh, Kelly.
2: Yeah, great. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I always love talking about this topic, so this is a great one for me. Uh, yeah. So my name is Kelly Wallach. Uh, She/her. Um, I'll give a little background on myself. I've been in the games industry for a little over a decade. Um, for most of that time, I had founded and ran a company called the Indie Mega Booth, um, which was a showcase for independent game developers. Uh, we worked with over 800 studios during the nearly decade that we were running. Uh, mostly did consumer or showcases at consumer facing events, but we did things at like GDC where you co-organized Bit Summit, which is in Kyoto. Um, we did events like globally um, all over the world. Uh, Sadly, we had to go into hibernation during the pandemic, but TBD, so uh, hopefully I'll have some more to say about that soon. Um, Yeah, and then for the last seven years, I was also the chairperson for the Independent Games Festival, which is an award ceremony for independent game developers. Um, Just stepped down from that position this past year. Uh, I think I was the longest running tenure of a chairperson and also the first woman to hold the title, which is really exciting. Uh, Yeah, and then about four years or so ago, I had gotten approached by Ed Freeze, who he was a long time uh, at Microsoft, helped launch the the original Xbox and Xbox project and was uh, uh, heading up their publishing department for a long time. And he had wanted to start a venture fund, but really wanted to have this um, community component to it. So when we were talking about it, <clears throat> sorry, it's a little early for me, so this is the first thing I'm saying. Um, so when we were talking about it, we had a lot of shared values around like what we wanted to do with the community side, uh, how we felt about the games industry. We have a really big focus on diversity. Uh, and so, I, like I said, I didn't know too much about venture funding at the time, but I really loved uh, the idea of working with Ed and building this community. So for the last couple of years, I've been also building and running the community of the OneUp Fund um, and then earlier this year came on as a full-time partner, meaning that I'm involved in the investing decisions, um, taking pitch meetings, and then also um, starting to be involved in the fundraising process. So that's a kind of, I have a lot of jobs. Um, there's like nine other things I haven't mentioned that I also do, um, but that's kind of primarily, you know, what what my role has been in the industry. So it's been very focused on Indie developers, small teams, supporting developers, um, helping them get connected up with platform holders, publishers, investors, funders. Like I just like my kind of motto is I want like, well, I want more weird people making weird things, but could also be cool people making cool things. I guess if if you don't like the word weird, but I'm I'm a bit of a a fan of weird, so. Uh, that's I, kind of all <laughs> in the industry.
1: <laughs> I am as well. I think we're all wonderfully weird in this industry. And, and thank <laughs> you so great. much for, for sharing that. And it's why I'm very excited to pick your brain today because I think you have just such a vast and holistic insight into mm. different facets of the, you know, broader games industry, but also particularly within the indie game development yeah. scene. Um and so what i'd like to start talking about first is just kind of the foundations of of fundraising and Mm -hmm. some you know um tips and and insight into how indies can get started on navigating that process and then we can move into discussing some market trends and um really honing in on sort of the 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 title of this talk right in terms of making sense in in where we are now in 2022 um in a in a post-pandemic world yeah (laughs) um but (laughs) the the first question i have is really um just in terms of getting started, like how can indie developers determine um, readiness for pitching, publishing, or seeking investment? Uh, you know, th- there will be different perspectives around yeah. what is essential in a developer's toolkit. Do they need a prototype? Are they okay with, you know, just um, an idea? Some mm-hmm. some you know VCs and investors are simply investing in founders now based on a profile, yeah. right? So, um, what's what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, again, I think it kind of depends on how and where you're trying to pitch and fundraise. So I'll talk a little bit about publishing and then, or project financing, I guess, might be a better way to say, and then I'll talk a little bit about investment funding as well. Um, So I think that, you know, if you're gonna go after publishing funding, you might need something more than just kind of like an idea and a team. Um, I think this also kind of depends on your experience in the industry. So if you're like relatively new in the industry and you haven't shipped a lot of titles before you haven't run a studio before, I think that there might be a little bit more things that you need to like go along like any of the pitches that I've really seen that have from an investment standpoint that have gotten funding kind of like on an idea and a dream. Um, are like teams that are like, I have 20 years in the games industry and I've run two studios before. Or I've worked on these like huge titles and I was very high up in the company that I was at. And I have this team of like, you know, people who also have experience in this field as well, too. So it's a little less like kind of pie in the sky because I think that there's an, a, there's an understanding that the people that are pitching the idea can likely execute on what they're trying to do. I think also, too, that the kind of like... Um, the idea and the dream can work a little better sounds counterintuitive on like a giant title because it's really hard to be like i'm going to put together a prototype for a like a 50 million dollar game before i go and pitch because that's just like a huge (laughs) process right um but then like something in the mobile space you know you can kind of pitch on the dream and you know potentially get funding somehow you know through a publisher or um or traditional investment. But because there's so much rapid iteration, mobile market is very metrics driven. It's like you kind of want to make product quicker and you want to be testing it and getting it into soft launch markets. Mobile is an area that I'm getting more involved in now because it's not super prevalent in the indie scene for a lot of like, uh, I guess, obvious and not so obvious reasons. But so I think if you're if you're focusing on mobile, you might need something sooner rather than later, even something that's like very, very just initially playable or has like some very initial metrics. Um, I've seen some investors now wanting more initial metrics um, mm-hmm. just because of the way the markets shifted and stuff, even um, even with games that are kind of like early in production. Um, but like I mentioned, I think that having a prototype for like a gigantic project is going to be pretty complicated. Having a prototype for a mobile. Um, project would make sense. I think for like an indie scope thing, which is something that we're talking about here, you probably could have some sort of small playable or prototype or a vertical slice. I don't know how necessary it would be. I think it would kind of depend again on the scope and scale of the project on the experience of the team. Um, You know, if you're really new to the industry and you've put together something that's like playable, that's like really cool. um, You know, the art style is amazing or the mechanic is super interesting or or something like that, like you might have a better chance of somebody wanting to fund it rather than just saying like, hey, I just got out of school and I have an idea. I'd like some money, you know, cause at that point it, there's so much unproven that it's a little hard to like, I think from a funding standpoint to tell whether that's worth putting in the money to. That being said, I think that there's a lot of programs like I know Sony and Microsoft have like little grant programs. So does um, Epic, you know, there's like, there's lots of ways for like small, New indie teams to like get some small amount of like prototype funding um, to be able to get to that point so that they can get something ready to go talk to like publishers and platform holders and and investors if they they choose to do that.
1: That that's actually a good segue into um, the next question I had, which is around how developers should evaluate their. The current state of their project or studio um in order to determine which type of funding they should pursue so you mentioned grants and i guess if you're yeah. a sort of pre-production stage or just you know in the concept phase and that that could be you know a viable route that's certainly what we we've been doing at code coven through the accelerators mm-hmm. that we've been running um, you know a lot of the developers that we've been including in our accelerators aren't don't necessarily have a playable demo or prototype, yeah. um, but the, you know, we still provide them with funding and then we get them to the next stage at which yeah. they, they can go through the accelerator and develop that prototype then. But, yeah. um, what is the you know criteria that, um, developers should be considering when they're determining what kind of funding they should be seeking?
2: Yeah. So, um, I talked about this recently and and I just I've I've actually had two podcasts go out recently, that one where I talk a lot about the one up community and investing and stuff. And then another one that was kind of like a primer on how equity investing works. So if you kind of want a deeper dive into any of this stuff, you know, that that could be a good um, place to learn a little bit more. Um, But one of the things that we talked about and I think it's kind of interesting is that I think it's less about the project and more about like, what do you want as a studio? Right. So there are like any, I feel like any project could be right for any amount of funding, you know, kind of depending or any type of funding, depending on like what you really want to do with it. So this is something that totally blew my mind about investment funding and I didn't, or equity investment. And I didn't realize this, but like investors don't make any money until you sell your company. So like you can make a game that makes like a billion dollars and like tech, like 99% of the time, I'm sure there's, you know, exceptions to how these are set up like your investors are getting none of that money, like that money is just going back into the company, it's going into profit sharing for the team and the founders. Um, And so, like, basically, if you plan to like, grow, grow a studio, grow a company, till it's like large, and then sell it that that dream and that idea that's perfect for equity investment. Um, There's what's considered a lifestyle um, company, which the mega booth was that. So this is like not a derogatory thing, but it basically means that like the point is that you're making enough money to like kind of keep going. Right. So a lot of indie studios are, would be considered like a lifestyle company where the goal is to like keep making games with the the people that you love working with and then just like get enough money to make the next game. Right. Um You know, I'm sure there is also the dream of like, oh, I'm Stardew Valley now. Right. Like I've hit it big. I've hit it big. And at that point you could just like do whatever you want. Right. But, you know, not, all, not everyone, you know, that's, that's exciting because it's very rare. Right. Um, so if your goal is to kind of like build a studio and a company that's making cool things, you know, and little projects and you put them out and like you can just keep making the next game, you know, maybe you kind of hit it big with something like that might be better for project financing or for other forms of, of, um, of fundraising than equity investment. Cause an, an investor is going to look at like, how big can this company get and are they going to sell it at the end so you know i don't think that there's a right or wrong answer to those things but i do think that like that to me is the differentiation and not so much the project i mean the project can go along with that right so if you're like hey i'm gonna make um you know small little vignette games over a period of time or something like okay that might be hard to like pitch to an equity investor but i think that there's a variety of things that you could pitch to investors that in theory could like grow and make your company really big, even having a portfolio of games, right? So it's not like you have to make one giant, expensive, exciting A title. You could be like, hey, we're going to like make like 10 of these games over the course of however many years and we're going to grow this audience. And then like by the time we get to our fifth or sixth game, it's going to be really big and that's going to be exciting. Uh, you know, so I think that there's a lot of variety of ways to do that. But I, I would think a lot more about like what do you want as a studio and what do you want as a founder? Um, And what are your ambitions and what are your goals around it and then find the funding that would support that properly, as opposed to like thinking about it as like, is this the right project?
1: That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing that. And irrespective of the type of funding that, um, you know, a developer might go after. Is there any standardized criteria that you've seen now, you know, within, you know, wearing, having worn multiple hats (laughs) within the indie game ecosystem, like what are some of the more salient and common themes that you're, you see, you know, across people evaluating, whether it's through a grants program or, um, angel investing even, right. Or, um, or equity investment until equity investment. So what are the key, um, you know, components of that perfect pitch or, um, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so this is something that I think, and I think that this works, whether you're whatever kind of investing you're doing or whatever kind of studio you're trying to build. I am a huge fan of like vision boarding and like planning out like like what are you working towards? I think a lot of people have like a fuzzy idea, but they're not totally sure what exactly they're they're going for. And so I think most of the pitches that I've seen be the most successful are ones where it's very clear that the person has thought very deeply about what they're trying to build and why they're trying to build it and what exactly it's going to take to build that. And so, and you know, in my experience, when you're getting asked questions during a pitch meeting or during an evaluation for an accelerator or something, I think it's less about like, do you have a right answer? Um, and more like, do you have an answer? And has that answer been thought through? So if you're asking for $20 million, like that's a lot of money and it's fine mm-hmm. to ask for $20 million. And there are definitely games that cost $20 million, but like, why do you need $20 million, right? And like, what exactly is that $20 million gonna be used for? And I'm not talking, I mean, I think you should definitely have a spreadsheet that's like exactly what the $20 million is being used for. But if you can justify like, hey, we need this much to hire to get to this point and this much in this, this point and this point, um, you know, I think that that like, goes a really long way. And on the flip side, which I see more with indie developers, is I think that they're really underestimating what it actually takes to make and create a game, right? Um, I'm a huge proponent for a lot of reasons of like making sure that people are compensated for their work and being paid to work on things. Um, and so if you really want to be realistic about being able to pay your team properly and to be able to hire the resources that you need, like most indie games, I think, you know i haven't done a back at the envelope calculation lately but i'd say they're probably in like the half million dollar to million dollar range or more which sounds like a lot and i think that if a lot of teams sat down and they're like oh it's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars because they're not taking into consideration like their time you know mm-hmm. like a lot of people and founders aren't paying themselves they might be like oh we'll do some agreements on rev share which again it's fine however you want to set things up but i think too if you go and you pitch to somebody like a publisher or a platform holder or an investor, and you're like, I need $72,000 and 50 cents to like make this game, (laughs) you know, and like, I'm going to like not pay rent. And then this person like agreed that they would do it on the side. You know, I think that that also is like a red flag for somebody to invest in the project. Because again, it's almost kind of on the other side of what I meant, like, you know, asking for $50 million or something is that, you know, it kind of shows that you don't, you're not connecting the dots on like the reality of what you actually need to finish the project, you know, and the, the proper amount of resources and time that it's really going to take to make something like that. Cause say it does say it does cost you $70,000, but maybe it takes you eight years to make it, you know, because everybody's only working on it for 10 minutes a day or something, you know, like that's another thing, like, uh, you know, somebody who's funding a project, uh, you know, cause when it comes down to it, the point of, of all of the funding from the perspective of the funders, you know, 99% of the time is to like, they hope that it makes some money, right? Or that they hope that you make money or they hope that like it becomes successful or, you know, and there's a lot of projects that are just for like, uh, less in the US, but things like art grants and, you know, people that are kind of like patron of the arts um, style things and um, stuff that's like to build goodwill or to help to bring, um, you know, diversity into the industry. And so those are less about like, how much money is it making? But like, you know, generally that's what the perspective of like a publisher or investor is gonna be is like, will this make money in the end. And so I think that if you've really thought through what you're trying to make, what you're trying to build with your studio, what that timeline might be, what your resources might be, also being self-aware of where your gaps are, I don't I actually think it's a really good thing to say the things that you know you don't have, you know, because it also shows that you have awareness of the potential pitfalls. So I think the more that you can think about that and the more you can go in and just present a holistic picture that is very real of what you need, I think that that's where I see the most successful projects, you know, Um, because I think that that also kind of eliminates the problem where you're pitching a game that's not interesting or something that's been done a million times, because if you're also doing a little bit of like a market analysis or you're kind of thinking about like what is the audience, you might be like, oh, you know, there's 9 million of this genre of game already. So like maybe I should like, Put a twist on it or maybe i should make it a little different or i should do that so i think it kind of solves a lot of the a lot of the problems that that people have when they go into pitch um if they just spend a lot of time up front being very clear about like what they need and what Thank they're you. looking for yeah
1: that makes a lot of sense um there's definitely one point in there that i'd like to echo which is you know around making sure that you are compensating yourself as an indie developer yes. <laughs> and, and your team um, it's certainly something that we Factor, you know, into our yeah. um, grant distributions and stipend distributions within our accelerators at Code Coven. we 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 you know specifically fundraise to be able to distribute stipends to the devs that are going through the accelerator, but also want to see how they are budgeting and make sure that they are paying their teams yeah. um, and compensating them for their time because yeah, suddenly all those resources get used up and you don't realize it. So um, yeah. definitely workshopping through, through budgeting is is something that I think. Yeah. Um, and and, I, more support and I
2: will, I will caveat this as saying, I'm giving this advice as someone who barely paid themselves for the first handful of years. I'm, <laughs> I'm only saying it with the retrospective of like, there are a lot of things, you know, like uh, it can build up resentment, you know, along with like the rest, if you're paying the rest of your team, but you're not really paying yourself, you mm-hmm. know, it kind of creates this like, almost like kind of like a martyr feeling situation, which isn't super great. Um, it also made me feel really unstable and unsafe. And I think that like the couple of years leading into the pandemic, I had started to pay myself more regularly and then had slowly upped it to kind of like what would be considered like an entry level salary in the area that I live. And I was able to save money. And, and this is not to say that I was like financially suffering the whole time. You know, I was, um, you know, doing my thing and I was doing the things that I wanted to do and I had a good time with it. Um, but I was able to create a savings, which I hadn't had in a long time. And then when the pandemic happened and I had to close the company, I was able to like, it wasn't a disaster. I mean, it was a disaster, but it wasn't, you know, like I, I wasn't stuck with nothing basically at the end of it, because it was this huge unforeseen thing that like, I wasn't expecting or planning for, but because I had gotten in the habit of paying myself and was able to have, you know, some sort of like cushion for myself, then it made that transition a lot easier. Um, And so I just, you know, you don't, you never know what's going to happen. And I think that like making sure it's the oxygen mask, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself kind of thing, making sure that you're taken care of, I think will also put you in a better mindset to be able to run the company effectively. Right. Cause you're not always in this kind of like, like fight or flight mode. And this is like much easier said than done kind of situation, you know, like there is money and things out there, but you know, it can also feel like there's a lot of scarcity around it. And like, you might be scrapping together a bunch of stuff and your runway is really short and. You know how are you making the bills this month and next month and like that that pressure, um, you know, and paying your team and all that was uh, such an emotional weight and component to running a business that I didn't understand when I first started. Um, that I just think is like really important to consider when you're getting into it. And the more that you can help to make sure that you're taken care of, I think, the better that you can do with making those kinds of decisions.
1: Definitely, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to talk also a little bit about the market analysis that you mentioned. You also talked about metrics earlier, right? And how um, developers should be including some of those, but in the absence of um, data or the infrastructure to have robust, you know, analytics, especially if you're just (laughs) an early prototype with, with indies, but I mean, you do mention mobile and we are seeing a lot of, um, you know, a lot more indies uh, start developing for mobile. I'm um, I'm a mentor for the Google Indie Games Accelerator, which is oh, like primarily great. focused on, yeah. on mobile development. It's been really cool to see because especially there's so much opportunity within emerging markets for mobile yes. game development. Yeah. Um, but you know, let's say you're just an in indie dev, not necessarily developing for mobile. Like where where can you start? Um, and are you know basic like qualitative feedback insights valid in in a in a pitch? Right? Like what, um, what sort of data would you be looking for as an investor?
2: Yeah. So like I mentioned, I don't have a huge depth of knowledge on the, the mobile stuff. So I'm gonna speak kind of generically about what I've seen, you know, I think, well, first off, um, this was something that was kind of new for me too, is that there's a, a handful of companies that do data and analytics and market research and stuff for the games industry. I'd say the most popular ones are new zoo, um, which is mostly focused on PC and console. And they have a little bit of mobile data and then sensor tower. Um, which is focused primarily on mobile data to gain access, like to get a license, to actually use those are very, very expensive, um, especially for a small studio. Um, so you're talking like tens of thousands of dollars kind of cost, uh, per year, but they do actually put out a ton of free reports and free resources. Um, if you sign up for like newsletters and things that they send, they're always like, Hey, here's a report, you know, that we did on. This market or something. So I I would really highly recommend checking out that those kinds of sites and finding just free data. And I've seen in pitches lots of times stuff that's just pulled from, you know, like annual reports or something that are free that are put out by zoo and Sensor Tower. So I think as long as it's like coming from a reputable source, um, I think that that's fine to use that. Um, you know, as far as like what the benchmarks are for good metrics in mobile, like I said, I, I feel like there's like, you know, all these retention numbers, there's stuff on ad spend, you know, there's all there's it's it's almost like a separate language, I feel like for the rest of the games <laughs> industry. So my kind of advice would be to like, try and find some other people who are doing work in mobile um, or, you know, look at some stuff online and see if you can find any kind of good benchmark numbers um, on, you know, like what you would hope that your, your game would have. But there's so many different ways to get those numbers. Like you could do you know, like a friends and family testing, you could do a soft launch and like a, you know, a a market that's not in the U S and everybody has differing opinions on whether these are good or not. Cause you know, sometimes if you're paying for a company to acquire users, they'll like kind of bump up how good the numbers sound because they want you to hire them later. And if it's like all your friends who like love you and love your game, then like those numbers are obviously going to be higher. Um, So, you know, I think that that's like kind of its own little like science like science science thing you know within (laughs) the games industry um as far as like metrics i'd say for other games yeah if it's very early and it's like a kind of more traditional like pc console game or it's like a larger scope or it's going to take a few years to build i don't think most people at the beginning are going to expect any kind of like real numbers Um, but i think that once you get a little further along like once you get into an alpha if you can get a couple hundred people playing it or you know a few thousand people or something you know just something to kind of get some like initial idea and feedback, I do think that that's important just regardless. And that that was kind of one of the functions that I think showcasing your game at a at a physical event was really good for was to get a lot of rapid play testing from like a wide variety of people who also were interested in video games and might be your potential audience. Um, and so that you could also like see you know what people were getting excited about. There could be some false positives in there. Like mm-hmm. something that was very common was that. Uh, local multiplayer games would do really well on show floors, but not super yeah. well in sales, you know, because it's like you're in this specific environment where you're like already hanging out with your friends and everyone's having fun and there's a crowd of people watching. And then like when you're at home, like that's a whole different situation. Right. Um, and also like for a local multiplayer game, only one person needs to buy a copy of the game. So you're already kind of like cutting your, you know, your potential profits into like into half or quarters or, or, you know, whatever it is um so you know i think that those numbers as you're in like kind of pc console and you're further along start to get more important i feel like i am seeing a little bit more of like a trend towards wanting some sort of metrics for pc console where i think that that was kind of just the the domain of big aaa companies you know and not even that much which i always thought was kind of funny because it's like, we have access to all this information and data and analytics and I come from a science background. So I'm like, why are we not using it more? Um, but it's, it's been kind of primarily used I'd say in like in the mobile market, which can be very like cutthroat about it, you know, very like AB testing and like, where, oh yes. Know,
1: does the character look this way or do they look this way? And which one, you know, it's like, <laughs> you're you <laughs> <were> t- super <laughs> narrowed <down.
2: laughs>
1: You're tugging on the heartstrings of my product manager hat, right? Like as a, <laughs> as a product manager within the mobile game space outside of the code yeah. code and stuff. It's something I think about on, the, on a daily basis as well. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned something really interesting around the rapid play testing. And I'm curious to know how you've seen developers actually capturing and collecting data during those processes like if they are right like when they're there on the on the show floor in the conferences watching people play test are they distributing surveys to play testers during that um i mean i've i've been there at conferences playing but i I never feel like i'm actually getting asked um you know or at least like that the devs are eliciting feedback then and there necessarily so i'm curious to know what you've seen
2: yeah. I mean, I'm sure some people have done surveys. I haven't seen it super common or I, to me, I don't think it's super common. I think what's more common is that you put the you, and technically, I don't know, whatever you hook up analytics right. into your game, you know, so that like when people are playing it, then you're collecting all that data. Like how long are they here? Like, where are they getting stuck? Like how many people picked it up and then just stop playing it? So I think a lot of it's kind of like a little bit hidden. Um, Also, I think for playtesting and kind of a good practice thing is it's not super great for the developer or the designer to be the person that's like interacting with the playtesters because the playtesters will like be nice to you because they know that you made the game um, and they don't want to say something mean or like, you know, and, and this is also something that we thought about a lot when we were curating for games, whether they were going to be in, like, our GDC showcase or in a PAX showcase, for example. So GDC, your primary, your primarily, your audience there is other game developers, right? And, like, when you're at something like PAX, your primary audience is a general consumer or consumers of video games. And so if we saw a game that we felt had a lot of potential but needed, like, key feedback, we would put it at GDC because the kind of feedback that you're going to get from another developer or designer might be, like, Oh, if you change the controls here, or if you change this loop, or if you did this, you know, like they can kind of identify from like a design and technical standpoint, what you might need to do with the game to help improve something where like a general user or general consumer playtesting might just be like, Oh, I felt stuck or I felt mad or like it didn't jump right, you know? And so like their feedback is going to be a little more like up for interpretation, or you kind of have to figure out like, why are they feeling stuck on this as opposed to like them being able to kind of like help problem solve you know like what you might be looking at
0: sign up today for the indie game business newsletter it's a weekly source of business news curated for indie dev teams We've got discounts on all indie game business events and events from all of our partners. You get a first look at the summaries and takeaways from all of our podcasts. There is exclusive opportunities for promotions and early access to new tools for development, monetization, and more. Check it out. Sign up. PowellGroupConsulting.com slash publisher list.
2: So I'd say that, like, um, you know, keeping all of those things in mind. Um, and also, you know, I think it can be helpful to just see the excitement level. Like, are people talking to their friends about it? Are they bringing people back? Are they like, oh, my God, the art is so cool. Um, I had an anecdote from Alex Bruce who had made um chamber And, like, some he always had a hard time explaining what the game was. And, like, somebody just walked by and was like, oh, it's, like, M.C. or the video game. And he was like, oh, perfect. Great, oh, great. right? Because, like, if you take a person who doesn't, know what this is at all they have no vested interest in coming up with a good explanation for it and they just can like offhand like like they can look at it in a way that like you're not going to be able to look at it or your friends Mm -hmm. might not be able to look at it so I think you can also get some kind of insight on to help with like some like marketing or like what yeah what is like standing out from your game because going into it you might have been like oh everyone's going to really love the combat but everyone's like man I love this character or like I really like this thing so then you can be like okay I'm going to double down on that And I think that that's like what the mobile and the rapid iteration is doing is that mobile tends almost to be like community driven in a way. And I think that some game studios do this really well too, where they're like getting a lot of people in really early and all the time to get feedback from their fans and from the community and from an audience on like what is resonating with them, you know? Um, So I think that that can be, can be powerful, but also like, I don't know if you've ever seen the like designing a stop sign by committee YouTube video. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you could end up with a stop sign that nobody can read um, because 90 yeah. people have made a decision about it. You know, so you do have to have your curatorial like eye, you know, on it.
1: Um, Absolutely. No, I uh, I mean I I think it's super valuable and especially caveating and being mindful of the potential biases that will emerge, right? And, yeah. and thinking about whom your target audience is and recruitment for specific playtesting yeah. sessions. Um community management, you know, is really essential too, as you said, yeah. you know, we're seeing more and more, um, studios just create discord servers immediately so that they mm-hmm. can actually go in there and, and host playtest sessions. Like through yeah. our accelerators at code coven, um, we host, um, bi-weekly and even weekly sometimes, uh, play, you know, playtesting sessions, not just within the developer community and the cohort, but also to the broader code coven community. Yeah. So it's, it's cool. Cause you'll get the perspectives of both, the devs and the consumer in that way as well. Um, So that's really interesting. Uh, I also want to ask you a little bit about um, monetization models, right? Because we're talking about mobile and, you know, mobile are uh, typically a lot now are free to play or, you know, just live service games. And, um, you know, as an indie game developer in this world, in this day and age, when we're seeing an increasing shift toward games as a service and all of the you know, emotional weight that comes with that for some indies, right? You know, we want to yeah. stick to the artistic integrity of the of the premium title, and um, there, you know, there the, the that monetization model does have, you know, some negative uh, connotations and associations within you know specific yeah. communities. So, I'm curious to know, like your insight and advice into how developers should be determining what the right monetization model is for their for their project.
2: Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I'm kind of maybe individually just a fan of like whatever you think is best for your game like honestly um you know i think that there's a balance between pitching and creating something that you think will get funded and also like having just a very clear straightforward vision about like what you want to do and what you're creating right and so i think that there's some you're going to get a million different pieces of advice you know there's i'm sure there's people out there that are like every single thing that i said they're like well here's the counter argument you know and that, that's fine but you know everyone's going to have opinions and so like for example you know i'll take something like web3 crypto nft stuff there were like you know a lot of people that were pro pro web3 a lot of people that were anti-web3 a lot of people that were you know agnostic about it and just were like whatever if you want to add in your game it's fine if you don't you know go for it Um, And so I think in a certain situation or in some situations, you just need to make a decision and stick with it. Right. Like if you feel super strongly that like this is a premium game, like pitch it as a premium game, make a premium game, do it. You know, like if you like deeply feel convicted about that, you either have experience with it, other people have experience with it. You just feel like it's the best thing for your game. Then I think that there's also something to just going and expecting to get rejected by people that are going to go along with it. And that's, that's fine, you know, and just finding the right partner who's going to believe in like what you're trying to build specifically and the way that you want to, you want to do this. That being said, <laughs> I will say that I think that there's a lot, I don't know on the publisher side too much, cause I haven't been hearing too much about this, but I think that there is a tendency in the equity investment side to not really go into premium games. I think there's some, I don't know if it feels outdated or there's some sort of bias or something. Me as an individual, like, you know, not, super old but i've been around for a while and like i love the idea of just buying a game and just having it you know like i don't really want to have monetization loops i don't really care about um you know all of these like kind of ways that i could like buy or spend money or something in a game like i'm just kind of like i'll just pay some money and i i have the game and that's fine um but i do think that there is like almost every team that we've been doing some investing work in um it's like, if they are start, if they are premium, they're kind of starting as a premium title, you know, and going into like early access or something and then shifting to a free to play model and then games for a service, games as a service later. Um, there's a really great, I don't know how much they talk about it, but in the, there's a no clip documentary about uh, the super giant team around the time that they were building Hades. And and like, I, I know that, that like that having to put out regular content really took a toll on the team and like they're a small company, right? And so games as a service is like, not easy to do right because you need but i think that there are like creative interesting ways that teams are thinking about it like how do they systemize stuff or like okay maybe instead of like you know like there's a brand new story and characters every like six months or something that there's like other smaller things or uh you know a battle pass style you know so i think that there's actually a lot of exploration and ideas that are happening in that space so you know i would kind of encourage folks to think about like yeah, again, like what could that look like realistically for the size of team that you have, the scope of the project, is it the best for the game? You know, what is that gonna look like? And if you are gonna do premium titles, and this is, I guess, maybe more towards equity investing, like, are you gonna have multiple titles? You know, cause what happens after after you launch the game then? You know, like how does it continue uh, to be making money? And I do think that like free to play, moving out of mobile and into PC consoles, you know, we're seeing that a lot as well, too, you know, and there's just like a lot of different ways that you can monetize on a free to play model. And like when I first started in the games industry was when free to play was kind of first starting and there was a lot of negativity around it, especially in the indie space. Um, And I think, you know, some of it is warranted and, you know, but it's also evolved and changed a lot and it's something that's not going anywhere. And I think it's something now that a lot of like players, especially on mobile, are expecting. Like I tried to show a game to my friend outside of the games industry the other day. I was like, "It's a great game," da, da, da. and she and so I showed it. You know, she looked it up on her phone. And she's like, "Oh, I have to pay for it," and I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> 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 like, like you pay because she's oh, like, 'Oh, I'm used to them being free, right?' can right? buy something later, so like, and she didn't. She didn't want to buy it, right? I let her play it on my phone, and then you know she could make a decision about it later. But it was just funny where she was just straight up, like confused, like, yeah. oh, like why is this mobile game have a dollar amount attached yeah, to it?
1: The per- the perception has shifted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think personally that one of the values that, um, comes from games as a service is this opportunity for developers and their audience to sort of co-create in a sense, right? Because you're really yeah, listening exactly. to the feedback yeah. of your audience and then being able to iterate and improve your game or yeah. implement new features accordingly. And I think that. That's um, one of the more compelling facets, in, in my opinion. Um, but like you mentioned something interesting in terms of, you know, sometimes um, a project might start out as a premium title and then shift yeah. into a free-to-play model. Um, how are you seeing the impact or changes in monetization models with the new, you know, um, platform subscription services and distribution channels, right? So we have the Xbox Game Pass, yeah. you know, PlayStation has their own... Um, Netflix now you know is, is just yeah. doing a lot of content with on titles that were maybe historically premium and now just on based on those you know yeah. Netflix subscription. So what are you seeing in in that ecosystem? and um, how are you if if you are you know at all supporting some of the studios or developers with negotiating those deals?
2: Yeah, so I'd say this is another area where I I have some insight as far as like teams talking with the folks. I don't know kind of long term if it's really played out like what does this mean for the industry or are the teams doing well or not well from it? You know, I would say I've generally heard some positive things from developers. I've definitely heard negative things from people in the industry who are really concerned about what it means in the long term as far as like uh, subscription services go. Um, I think that from the kind of limited experience that I've had with people who have gotten those deals is that it seems really helpful in the sense of just g- getting a minimum guarantee basically of money. Um, I think for smaller teams, especially if you can negotiate a deal like that, I feel like do it because like you basically are getting paid for what you consider that you might have earned if it were available outside of the subscription service. Um, and so I think that there's like, it, it could be a really I think powerful situation to be in where you just know that you're getting a certain amount of money instead of just launching the game out into the ether. Um, I've heard some some anecdotal stuff on that they think that it's done better for sales. Again, this is all you know. I don't really have a ton of information to back this up on. Um, you know, I and I'm gonna say if I zoom out a little bit, I think that for the time that I've been in the games industry and talking to people who've been in the games industry for a long time, is there's always something shifting and changing and new and up and coming and i think when you're an indie developer a lot of companies and platforms will come to the indie development community to get a lot of content very rapidly and i think that you should use that to your advantage as much as you can like i'm kind of a like get the money (laughs) you know like like we're in a capitalist society money money is resources of power or whatever at this point whether you agree with it or not and like You know i i want to for me like i like to try to be as ethical as i can kind of about you know like you don't want to take money from especially someone who's who's being predatory or is hurting the industry or something like that but generally i just kind of feel like if you feel like you can do something important and impactful with the money then try and get it right and so i think that there's opportunities where like on emerging platforms or emerging business models or big companies that are looking to do something new the number of times that i had new platforms new publishers new whatever come to me to want to get access to the Mm -hmm. developer community. in the mega booth was so high. And it was like every six months, there's something right. And they normally have some small budget that they can kind of throw towards just getting in basically kind of cheap content quickly, because it's a lot harder to be like, okay, we're going to fund a $50 million AAA game than it is to say, we're going to have a $10 million fund and we're going to pick up 10 games. Right. You know, with that amount of money. So you know i think if you can negotiate a good deal just generally that you feel like isn't predatory is going to do good for your studio you know it hopefully isn't hurting the industry overall and is some sort of opportunity that will like let you make better decisions in the future or let you continuing to like run your studio or make your studio successful then i think that like you should try and do what you can with it right um And so to kind of zoom back in on the subscription services, you know, I think that there was like a lot of money and opportunity from these companies early when they were first starting this, they were, you know, leaning in heavily on indie community and getting folks into that so that they could broaden that to bring in larger games and stuff later. And so if there's still opportunity to do deals like that, then like, I think that that could be a good thing. You know, what it means for the long-term health of the industry. Like, again, I like the premium title where you just buy the game and then you just have it. You know, I also, I'm not sure how they're like paying out on metrics and stuff like so. Like, are you making a game now for a subscription service or are you making a game, you know, which is a like I said, that's that's kind of the thing is like if you have an idea and a vision, then I think you should make the idea and the vision, right? Yeah, like, as much as you can. It's it's hard. It's it's a very there's a lot of balance, you know, when you're like making something that you feel passionate about, that's artistic, that you love, that is creative. But it also needs to be a business, but also you need to pay people, but also you need to take into consideration this ethical thing, but also like, okay, how ethical can I afford to be, you know, it's the, it's a lot, you know, and I think you got to just pick where your boundaries and your values lie and try and stick with that just like as much as possible um, and make the best of like those opportunities that come to you that like fit within within that
1: value system, right? That, that really resonates with me. It's, it's something I think about on a on a daily basis. Yeah, of, you know, we are in inherently in a creative industry, and we want to yeah. maintain that integrity. Um, but at the same time, it's an increasingly competitive market. We're seeing so yeah. many d- dynamic changes yeah. in the industry, and we want to follow some of those trends to to chase the opportunity. as you say, yeah. You know, i'm I'm also a proponent of get the money as long as you yeah. know where your values are, if you're doing things yeah. ethically, I will you know I want you to get supported. I want you to get funded, yeah. and that's what we try to do at at Code Kevin, but it's it's a good segue into um, sort of the market trends section of this talk now and where I want to focus on where are we today? So, um, you know, during the pandemic, we saw yeah. so much change in the industry. There's been a lot of MA activity, right, mergers and acquisition activity, yeah. um, job losses across different sectors, but then skyrocketing engagement within the video games industry specifically, right? So like more yeah. lucrative opportunities. Um, we saw things like resurgence of social justice movements and more attention to diversity and inclusion. Um, and of course, like the rise of web three, as you already, had already yeah. alluded to. Um, but now, okay, we are literally about to enter 2023, which is crazy. Oh my to God, think about, I know. Right? Can, you, I, like, I don't know. Like, can you imagine?
2: We started the pandemic in 2020. That was exactly. A and uh, yeah. Now <laughs> we're
1: nearly three years later. And this is why I, I, I put it in quotation. I know, like I know. Co- Cause like, are we ever out of pandemic? Because I don't, I don't yeah, know, yeah. you know, um and you know where we are just in terms of the last six months um we've you know we've we've felt a very palpable impact on on the economy there there have been a lot of layoffs um within the games industry as well despite the you know you know increased engagement in video games but also maybe it has decreased recently due to the return to you know in-person work and just general like return to normal life um so just curious to know, like, as of today, what are some of the, you know, biggest opportunities and, and challenges? Are you seeing any um, dramatic shifts in terms of uh, funding opportunities? Uh, are, are firms tightening their belts a little bit and more focused on specific things? Like, like you said, there was a lot of attention to, to crypto and Web3 based yeah. games previously. Are, is that still the case now after the, you know, crypto winter? Um, yeah. Just just curious to know your sort of overarching perspective on this.
2: Yeah, there's a lot going on. I hate that. You know, I know everyone's so tired to death of the word unprecedented, but I feel like it's unprecedented times. I mean, it is and it isn't right. You know, like there's an ebb and flow to things, but also this ebb and flow is like being kind of shadowed by these big, huge macro economic things, situations that are just like actually unprecedented in our lifetime. And just generally, you know, that like, uh you know economies and things haven't had to deal with like you know the rise of globalization and then the breakdown of supply chain things and you know wars and and all this stuff that is and the internet you know which wasn't around the last time that there is you know like a lot of unprecedented things happening so i feel like there is like kind of a anybody who says that they know what's happening is lying to you, you know, like if we, if anybody knew what was happening, like, I I don't know, whatever, um, you know, they should be picking lottery numbers or something. Um, so, you know, but I'm also kind of a like proponent of that. There's a lot of opportunity when there's a lot of transition and change, right? Like when things are very settled and very institutionalized, you can kind of, you can carve out a space for yourself, but it is like very hard to do it where I think whatever it's kind of a free for all, you know, like there's a lot of, like, that's why I'm kind of like, you could get any game funded, right? If you like are are making the right thing at the right time or pitch it the right way to the right person or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I do think that there's a lot of opportunity when things are shifting and changing. Um, I will say that it feels a little bleak out there in the sense of like fundraising I, in equity fundraising, I'd say kind of especially, but then also like the what up fund, we're not seeing that we're having so much deal flow, but then like also, you know, like if your investors have a fund, you know, there's like five le- levels of investors operate right, that are dumping money down. So if like somebody at the top is spooked about the market because they lost $5 billion or something, right, then like that kind of this is where trickle down economics yes. happens, right? Yeah. Um, is that like, yeah, the scarcity trickles down. I don't think the abundance trickles down so much. But like, uh, you know, so I think that like, people, I, I would say, are kind of getting a little more conservative. And I think it's less because like there's less money or less engagement or less interest and more because there is like uncertainty. So my, I work with a financial planner who's a woman who's amazing. And um, she kind of talks about like when the markets are volatile, it's because there's uncertainty. So things like right before an election, Right. There's a lot of volatility in a market because we don't know what's happening. As soon as the election is over, then there's stability in the markets. Because whether it was a good or a bad outcome, there was an outcome. So like now we know what's happened in it, right? So I think that there's just piles and piles and piles of uncertainty. And that's kind of compressing down to a point where people I think are just kind of like freezing, you know, and they're just like, okay, I don't know what to do because I thought it was going this way. And now it's going this way. And then there's this and this and this and this. Um, like I said, though, there are still there's still demand for video games, obviously. Like there's still money out there for funding. There's still money out there for projects, but I'd, I'd say it is kind of like a more difficult time, even in the mobile market area, you know, like there's been a lot of like the, um, you know, privacy things and how ad targeted ads work. And that's really like thrown a giant wrench into like what people have been planning to do on ad spend in UA, which was kind of the backbone of the mobile industry. So, you know, if you're a team who can figure out the new model for that right then like you're going to be in an amazing position moving forward because like that's an opportunity right but if you're someone like most people who are in the mobile market and are used to a certain kind of like system and structure like now you have to rethink that and now you're having to like you know make all of these difficult decisions and things that like you might not have had to make in the past um you know as far as like trends and things go I I'm assuming there's still money left in like some of these crypto web three funds, because they had a lot of money. I don't, I don't know, I'm sure they're still like investing stuff. We were pretty agnostic on it. So it wasn't like a a core value of like what we were trying to do. Um, I'd say something that like comes up a lot that I think is really interesting is like the AI component of stuff. And like, especially for smaller teams, and I have some friends in the indie scene who are thinking a lot about this is that it could narrow the gap between like an indie quality game and a triple A quality game, Mm -hmm. you know, in ways of like, concept art or music or writing or something, just basically to like give your pipeline, like extra resources essentially, without needing the extra financial resources. So I think that that's something that could be really exciting and something that is also probably a short-ish opportunity because at some point that's all gonna merge, you know, and like maybe everyone is using it and then there's not kind of this advantage of a small team using it versus like a big team using it. Um, But I think it's also like, happening very rapidly. Like the number of times that I've heard the word AI in the last like three weeks has increased like like 500%. Everyone I know on Instagram is posting their like- The GPT-4. Or or they're like, yeah, they're like AI versions of themselves. And like my friend had also just sent me, like he ran my my cartoon profile picture through a bunch of stuff. And I was like, oh, I should post this. And then like three days later, like literally everyone on the internet is posting like AI pictures of themselves. So I feel like that's something that is exciting and interesting and I've heard come up in pitches. to me it feels a little less uh how do I want to say like trendy than the web3 stuff mm-hmm. did uh, the web3 stuff it was clearly a bubble you know that was going to pop at some point I still think that there's a lot of interesting technology and opportunities and things within you know web3 blockchain crypto nft maybe it needs a rebranding or like people just need to rethink about you know like how they're looking at it um but I think AI is something that you know I'm, I'm hearing come up that's interesting
1: i absolutely agree i've been going down the generative ai rabbit hole the, the yeah. past few weeks as well and and just seeing the potential for democratizing the game development process yes. right in yeah. terms of like you are a small to med- like medium-sized indie you know game studio and yeah. leveraging the power of these tools can really help accelerate your development you know yeah. um, serve as a proxy for um some of the resources that you might otherwise not be able to get right yeah. so i think um, that's that's definitely interesting as far as um, other emerging or emergent technologies. And, you know, you mentioned that um, you're kind of agnostic on the Web3 thing at, at 1UP. But what about, um, you know, extended reality, right? VR, um, yeah. and AR. Is, are you seeing um, more opportunity within either space right now, there's, uh, there's so much, you know, debate and discourse around, yeah. okay, is, is it the time for VR? Is it not, you know, is it, you know, I know, uh, I, I know where AR stands a little bit, but, Yeah,
2: um, I have some complicated feelings on it. I feel like there's probably, as far as like a funding perspective goes, and this is, I'm, I'm speaking kind of more from an equity investment standpoint. I feel like there's probably more potential in AR than there is in VR. Um, and, you know, maybe for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into right now. Um, I think VR for me is one of those things that it is just it exists in the zeitgeist of people's imaginations of the future. Right. Like there is no future where we don't imagine that we're walking around in some holodeck or some immersive world, you know, whether it's on you know glasses or not glasses or a headset or not. Um, So there's something to me that in like in a very long term, like 50 years, 100 years or something like VR, AR has just got to happen because I just can't imagine it not, you know, based on all science fiction and all of human <laughs> yeah. imagination for the last hundred years. Um that that being said, I don't feel like the market is really quite there yet. And again, maybe this is a thing that like if you make a really I, I've not seen a lot of really, I'd say, compelling VR games recently or pitches. We don't really get them a lot. And when we do, I think it's it's kind of muddled with like Kind of trying to chase some opportunity where like you might be able to get some grant or funding money or you know they just think it's a neat idea but they're not totally sure what to do with it so i'm sure that there is like like beat saber right like i feel like that's like the most popular thing that came through vr so far and tilt brush i guess would be the other one and so i'm like okay well what's the next beat saber and i'm not sure why or what's been going on that there just hasn't really been this kind of like great use case or like, why is this game a VR game versus just a game, you know, or just a regular game or that, that isn't kind of like a, you know, like a, um, like a a quick scare or like a neat little toy or something like that. So I, I do think that there's opportunity there. Um, but I will say that I think as far as like my awareness of like getting funding for something like that, it's mostly coming from platforms or people that are invested in, the technology advancing forward and less because there's like a consumer demand i guess and and even less that there's a demand in the investment space to get into it but again again giant asterisk on everything i think if you had a super compelling team a super compelling project a really cool idea like you could get somewhere with that right and that could be you know you could be the the person who like makes vr the thing that everyone wants to have um, you know and that again like another facet of that is all of my friends outside of the games industry love vr like every i don't want to say average person like every non-games person or something but like people who are not like really into video games or into the culture of video games all like one of vr headset i bought a friend of vr headset have a vr head. it reminds me of like when like nintendo and stuff was first coming out it was just that like everybody had a nintendo and it was just super cool and if you didn't have one you went, everybody went to the friend's house, you had one. And when you were there, they were like, I have a Nintendo. And you're like, holy moly, you have a Nintendo and like little gun, you know? So like, I feel like VR has that. So it has some sort of like broad mass appeal that I think is being a little bit underestimated, but it's, it's kind of being used in a very casual kind of like party trick yeah, you kind know? of like
1: Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to ask you about, like, if whether yeah. they're more like short form experiences. And I think one of the challenges that developers had been facing historically was just the lack of accessibility of the hardware, but now that's becoming, you know, that's changing and we're getting updates. And I think it'll be interesting to see how much more emerges um, within that space. Um, Just before we um, leave some time for questions, I do uh, want to ask you about like underserved markets and where you're seeing opportunity. Um, Because, you know, going back to this whole, you know, there's a, a cultural moment where there's attention to diversity and inclusion. And we know now that, you know, the audience of, you know, the, the gamer audience has ever evolved, right? And it's ever yeah. evolving and it's, it's ballooning and then increasing. And so we're not just limited to that 18 to 35 year old <laughs> male demographic yeah. Yeah, yeah. that we keep hearing and seeing. Um, so just, like, are, there, are there any, <laughs> yeah. Are there any specific um, sort of underserved markets that you're particularly excited about or that you're seeing developers, um, you know, uh, developing for, or that you hope to see developers, um, start addressing in terms of target audience? Yeah.
2: I mean, this is something I feel so passionately about. I mean, we've touched on it kind of like a little bit throughout some of the questions, but I just, I think, I think the diversity component of teams and of audiences and of games is just so important. And I think it's also like literally the future. Like if you want to talk about an opportunity, like that is an opportunity, Right. And there's something that like Ed says a lot, I totally agree with. We're starting to hear it echoed by a lot of founders is that like the audience of people who play video games needs to be reflected in the studios that are making them. Right. So like if you're a mobile game studio and you're making games for women and it's a bunch of guys in their fifties or forties or whatever, like you are not, you don't have anybody who is the audience, your target audience for your game within that. Right. And I think that like, know besides the fact that like that doesn't feel great you know just kind of from a moral ethical standpoint i just also think it's like a bad business decision you know like i think that there is just so much opportunity um in making games for underserved audiences and underserved audiences at this point can basically mean anything outside of the 18 to 34 you know white male who's playing a you know first person shooter kind of game um you know i do think that there there is a lot of funding and diversity programs and um things with inside of organizations that are really trying to like help to support those kinds of founders. I always wish it's more, I always wish it was more integrated, Um, you know, and, and I do have a concern and I'm not quite seeing it yet, but I do have a concern that as the markets are rougher and people are making more traditional bets or conservative bets, that that means that they're only, yeah, exactly. And I think that this might be, or is being seen across a lot of different industries and so i have a hope that like that's not what that means and i do see i do still see in some cases people who are who are reflective of their audiences are targeting a non-traditional audience or underserved audience or whatever i think are still struggling to kind of get the point across to people who are in positions of power to make decisions about who gets funding and who doesn't and that's like one of the primary reasons why i really wanted to get involved in the funding side of work is because like there's not too many opportunities for people like me To be in a position to hold that much autonomy and decision-making power over who gets money right and so i'm like this is where i can have huge impact so i think that like there's a lot of different ways that this can be addressed but like one of the ways that i'm like excited about is like is uplifting people into position decision-making positions who are those audiences who can look at those games who can see those things and they can say like i get this game i get this audience i understand who this is for this does not feel risky to me this feels like a clear shot, right? And the more we have that, then I think the more that like those audiences can finally get what they deserve. And I think anybody who's making those things and could get it to them is like, they're gonna do well you know, like I said, I think it's a good
1: business decision. Like I, I, I cannot <laughs> like thank we you. We can all make money. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cannot thank you enough for your advocacy, especially as, as someone who's on the other end trying to fundraise to support underrepresented game <laughs> yeah. developers, right? Um, yeah. No, but but thank you so much for sharing that insight and, and, and everything overall. You really are a trove of knowledge within this space. And <laughs> uh, I certainly learned a lot, and I, I hope Great. that the audience yeah. did. Um, I'm mindful we have one minute, but there is one question okay, I believe let's in the try chat. And do. And I talk very ask. quickly,
2: so I can, okay.
1: I can try to Um, Great. So the question is from Alina likes cozy. Um, So it says great talk with the economic downturn, what can game developers do additionally to improve their fundraising process? Are investors looking and weighing certain criteria higher due to the market?
2: Yeah, I think a very mini answer to this is I will say there, I think there's a little bit of a trend on like, do you have some kind of metrics or are you a little further along in the process? I don't think that that's like kind of formalized across. Everybody, um, but I, I, will say that I, I, again, I think that like being really clear about what you're looking for, what you're trying to create, having like a good niche in the market, and a, and um, you know, a clear idea of how you think it can be successful in the future is something that is always going to work well, like no matter what the situation is. Um, and I would say also too to maybe try and take like kind of smaller steps, maybe we didn't talk too much. And again, on that, that podcast that I mentioned, I did talk a lot about the process of equity funding, you know, but there are steps between I'm raising $50 million and like, I need to get $200,000 to hire a team of people. Right. So there's like, and I think that breaking those steps down a bit further and not asking for the full amount up upfront and, and knowing that you're going to do multiple raises, I think will really help. Um, something we didn't kind of touch on where you were talking about, you know, are people tightening their belt and stuff like that. I would, I would try to get at least 18 months of runway as much as, as much as you can and expect any publishing deal, equity deal, anything to take at least six months. And, you know, it was take like six months from like, I'm starting to pitch to like, things are signed and I have money in the bank. And that's like a kind of average, right? So it could be a little bit longer and it could be a little bit shorter. So I think keeping that in mind too, so that you're not trying to raise, while you're in a really kind of like complicated situation or you're running out of runway or something is going to put you in a in a better position to negotiate as well too. So that's that's my like 45 second Thank answer so to a, a very good question. Thank you so much for asking. <laughs>
0: I heard something about 40- to 50-year-old men developers. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. That a group of 40- to 50-year-old dudes yeah. should make games for the demographic that they know. Exactly. That just That That's is different. really a no-brainer. You would think yeah. it's a no-brainer, but... I don't know. But
2: here we are. <laughs> this was such a great
0: talk. I love this. Thank you awesome. so much. Yeah, thank I'm so you. glad
2: to be invited. Thank you so much. This is yes, great. this was amazing. So,
0: next, we have some folks from Exola, and they're going to be talking about the marketing best practices to boost your game's launch. That was a mouthful for some reason. Nice.
2: Good job. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye, thank thank everyone. you, everyone. Bye.
0: And thank you so much, Tripwire Presents, for being such an amazing sponsor.